Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Human trafficking is a form of modern slavery. The victims, the people who are trafficked, are forced to work or, or are exploited sexually for commercial purposes. Most people believe human trafficking only happens overseas or in large American cities. Unfortunately, it happens right here in our own backyards in Pennsylvania. Joining us for this portion of the program to discuss human trafficking is Rhonda Hedrickson. She is the Director of Violence Intervention and Prevention at the YWCA of Greater Harrisburg. Ms. Hedrickson, welcome to the program. Hi, good morning, thank you. Also joining us is Sherry Knowlton. Sherry is an author and uh, healthcare consultant, and uh, she's kind of unusual, or unique, I guess I should say. I don't want to call anyone unusual. <laughs> unique in that uh, in the books she writes, she often incorporates social issues like trafficking. Ms. Knowlton, welcome to the program. Good morning. I hope you're not offended by being called unusual. No, no, I mean, maybe that's a compliment. <laughs> See, a lot of people would take it that way. I'm glad that you said that. Uh, if you have a question, or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, this is not the most pleasant topic to discuss. Uh, probably, I want to say probably, I know there are a lot of myths surrounding human trafficking, and we're going to talk about a lot of them here today, but I think it's, it's a good idea to define what human trafficking is. How do you define it? Well, Scott, um, human trafficking is really about the commercial exploitation of another person, and it's for the profit of somebody else. So whether that's sex trafficking or labor trafficking, both of those will fall under that definition of human trafficking. Mm -hmm. I would guess that most people think of the sex trafficking part uh, before they do the labor of uh, young girls being forced into prostitution. We hear about that so often in you know some of these countries where terrorism, uh, Boko Haram, for example, uh, you know some of the other countries uh, are around the world. Um, but the forced labor part here in the United States, I mean, when I say modern slavery, that's exactly what it sounds like. And that's exactly what it is. And and you hit the nail right on the head. It it is here in the United States, both labor trafficking and sex trafficking. And and Scott, you're absolutely right. You know, people do think of that uh, the sex trafficking first and foremost, but we want to make sure that as we put this message out today that we're looking at, you know, both those commercial sex transactions but also the forced labor and servitude um, that is prevalent right here and right here in our communities. All right, give me some examples of how that, the, the forced labor that you're talking about. Sure. What we know um, is that locally we see forced labor in different ways, and that may be through domestic servitude, uh, meaning your nannies that are in the McMansions around your neighborhood. If you look and see that that nanny never leaves. By the way, I don't have a McMansion in my neighborhood, but go ahead, I know what you mean. That's on the other side of town. Sure, sure. Um, but if that person is never leaving, you know, we may feel like we live at work sometimes, right, but we don't. Right. We get a day off. We, and we get a break. And we actually get paid for it. Yeah. And we get paid for it. Fair wages. These individuals are exploited. Often they come to this country, are recruited to come here for a job that when they get here, isn't what they signed up for. And then they're left with no options. They're threatened because of their immigration status, perhaps. But also we have to look at people here, our very own domestic-born individuals who are being both 
uh, sex trafficked and labor trafficked victims. All right, when we're talking about labor, are the people that you're uh, addressing, are they, are they paid? They can be, um, but those wages are going to be minimal. And, you know, an example may be the migrant workers who come and work in the orchards or the fields during the seasonal harvesting and planting and so forth. They may come here with a promise of a certain dollar amount an hour. And when they get here, that isn't what they receive. Or they may not get it right away. Um, so what makes it trafficking is the fact that they're being exploited through those labor services. Mm. What they sign up for, maybe not what they get. And maybe they didn't even sign up for this. I'm sure you you're yeah, ready to jump I, I think in. it's also important to, to just mention that um, what Ron is talking about is local trafficking or U.S. trafficking. Right, right. But people here um, are impacted in ways they probably don't know by worldwide trafficking. Well, for example. Um, children who are um, pressed into labor in the, the cocoa fields in Africa and in Latin America. Um, you know, people who are in forced labor, perhaps in some Asian countries, um, and the products are bought here. Um, you know, I think uh, the big thing a while back was conflict uh, diamonds where children uh, were pressed into mining in different places in Africa, and that still happens in some places. So there's worldwide trafficking that affects us here, and, you know, you need to think about. Um, and also men go on sex trips, mostly men go on sex trips to other parts of the world as well. So I know we're talking mainly about uh, local trafficking, no, but, I, but... That, that's a key point to bring up because unfortunately for many people, out of sight, out of mind, right. and you know it may shock them to hear the trafficking is happening right here in Pennsylvania, but maybe they don't think about how they are impacted by what happens thousands of miles away. Right, right. Right, and, and that, that's an excellent point, Sherry, because how many of you stop for your Starbucks coffee on the way? And where did those cocoa beans come from? So you have to think about the supply chain that's delivering that co the, the, the coffee beans up this way. And, you know, Starbucks has committed to um, ethically sourcing all of their coffee beans so that, you know, they're working through fair trade associations to try to um, address this problem. But, you know, it, it, it is a global problem. Well, let's talk about that because you mentioned migrant workers working in the orchards. Let's face it, here in central Pennsylvania, we have a lot of orchards. We have a lot of migrant workers. It's not just orchards, but migrant workers working on farms across the region. And I want to make sure that we're not, or at least I'll, I'll let you say it, that not all of them are using people who are, you know, grossly underpaid, who are, have been, I don't know, so even kidnapped and forced into labor. What is an employer to do? to make sure that that's not happening. Right, well, you know, that's gonna come down to looking at, you know, the status of these people. Um, are they being brought up uh, to work in a way that is, you know, ethical? Unfortunately, you have a lot of, of farmers that are just private guys, and maybe ladies, um, who, you know, work through an agency to bring up maybe six, seven, eight, um, migrant workers to their farm. Nobody's going to be checking that. So what we as a community have to be doing 
is looking at the signs and indicators. What would tell us that these individuals might not be um, or might be exploited in their work. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to kind of move around a little bit, jump around a little bit on the two of you, but uh, the two of you will be speaking later this morning. And in fact, we encourage people to attend, but talk about that and what you want to address. That This is the issue that you will be discussing, but uh, Sherry, what will you be doing a little bit later this morning? Well, later this morning, uh, the Penn State College of Medicine is hosting its third annual Penn State Public Health Symposium at Central Penn College. And Rhonda and I will be talking about human trafficking uh, awareness at that session today, um, actually fairly soon. That's right. <laughs> about an hour and a half about, from about now. About an hour and a half from now. <laughs> so I'm glad that uh, you, you, get, you can give us like 45 minutes this morning to talk about and, it. And what we're hoping to do, certainly what I'm hoping to do, is uh, you know raise awareness, uh, the, the very same uh, purpose I think you have here today, uh, to, to give more people... Um, information about trafficking, especially sex trafficking, um, in uh, both the world, but also here in South Central Pennsylvania. Now, you mentioned that the events today, Penn State uh, College of Medicine, uh, how does this relate to, you know, when they think of the College of Medicine, they're thinking medicine, they're thinking hospital, they're thinking about uh, uh, health care. How does this work it, itself in? How does it relate? They have a public health program, um, and so they've started to do these uh, annual conferences that highlight different topics. Uh, they're doing this one in conjunction with the Dickinson School of Law. Mm. So there's, you know, certainly legal issues in, involved in trafficking. And Genia um, is a big sponsor of the conference. But uh, it, there are very big public health implications from trafficking. Like what? Um sexually transmitted disease, um, abortions, unwanted pregnancies. Well, I guess I should have done it the other way around. Unwanted pregnancies, abortions, sterilizations, um, mental health issues. I mean, if you're a trafficked person, um, you know, you um, likely will develop mental health issues, drug and alcohol issues, because sometimes traffickers keep people in the situation uh, with drugs. And in the, this day and age where opioid addiction um, is such a big deal, you know, that all interrelates. And just the fact that um, these are broken lives um, at the end of, if it comes to an end, uh, yeah. of, the, of their trafficking, especially the sex trafficking. All the things you listed, I mean, they're, they're just heinous and it's, it's it's horrible to think about but i've often wondered about the mental aspect how does someone who has been trafficked ever recover from something like this well it's very difficult the trauma that a trafficking victim faces is compounded every day that she or he is involved in this um you know, we see trauma with domestic violence victims, with sexual violence victims that we work with at the YWCA. The level of trauma for a trafficking victim is so much more intense because of the nature of how that trauma is compounded every day. You know, imagine a woman being raped 20 times a day, 365 days a year. So happen? healing takes time. Um, and we bring in experts to work with the victims. We're not therapists, so we make sure that as part of the case management with our services that they have access, free access, to those services. 
last night on 60 Minutes, um, they did a, a piece on ISIS kidnapping and murdering a certain segment of the population. And there was a 21-year-old woman who talked about being raped 10 times a day while the guy who had kidnapped her or was holding her, his wife held her down. And I thought to myself, okay, first of all, again, horrible, but how can a human being survive being raped 10 times, and you just said 20 times a day. How can they survive that? Yeah, it, it's amazing what um, resiliency looks like. And uh, some some victims don't survive it. In fact, the life expectancy of a woman or a child involved in sex trafficking is about seven years once they enter this life. And just keep in mind, the average age now that's entering sex trafficking is 12 to 13 years old here in the United States. Um, in some foreign countries, it's as young as four or five. Where are, okay, here in the United States, Sherry, you mentioned that there are Americans who are being forced into this as well. Runaways, where are they coming from? A lot of runaways. I, I think um, the statistics are if, uh, well, worldwide, 1.2 million children are trafficked. And I think uh, the vast majority of trafficked people are women and children, uh, women and girls, but also boys. And also um, runaway boys are trafficked. Um, and um, LBGT uh, children who are runaways are very much at risk. Um, but one to three teens who are on the street will be lured into prostitution within 48 hours of running away from home mm. is one of the statistics that I found in my research for my books. So, um, you know, they're vulnerable, but um, but people living at home, kids living at home are vulnerable. Um, the Internet is a big lure, uh, luring tool these days. Um, just think about that young girl who was lured away f by that Virginia Tech guy not too long ago and killed. You know, the, it's just connections are formed, kids are vulnerable, um, and suddenly they think they're going for romance, and it turns into something uh, much darker. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. During this portion of the program, we're talking about human trafficking, not just in Pennsylvania. may surprise some people here, or surprise some people, that uh, it is occurring here in Pennsylvania, but across the country and around the world. Our guest, Rhonda Hendrickson, who is Director of Violence and Intervention and Prevention at the YWCA of Greater Harrisburg. Sherry Knowlton's an author and healthcare consultant. We do welcome your questions and comments, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to Smart talk at WITF.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF.org or on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. We do have a call from Maria in Lancaster. Maria, you're on the air. Hello. Um, I'm wondering if your um, guests know anything about uh, any kind of trafficking with the manicure and pedicure shops that are growing rapidly. We have so many in Lancaster, I've often wondered, how can they stay in business? There's, I can't imagine there's that much profit. And I did read something uh, sometime in the past year that some of these shops have, you know, kind of literally made slaves out of the 
young women who work there, and they literally like sleep in the back and never ever get to leave. Mm. So I'm wondering if anybody's researched this <clears throat> as far as in our area of Pennsylvania. Hey, Maria, thank you very much for your call. Good question. What do you know about that, that industry? So, yeah, Maria, that, those are excellent questions. And this is exactly what we want from the community. We want people to be looking and asking questions. Um, first of all, yes, you know, labor trafficking does happen in some of these nail salons. Not all of them, I'm not saying that, but it certainly is an area to look at. The massage parlors, what you want to see when you go into a business is a license hanging on the wall. So right there is your first indicator. If you don't see those licenses, um, I'm not saying there, there's going to be human trafficking, but it's your first indicator to look around and see what's going on. Look at the workers. Um, speak to the workers as, as somebody's in maybe getting their nails done. Um, how many days a week are they working? Are they working seven days a week? Where do they, they live? You brought up a good point about them, you know, sleeping on a mattress there somewhere. That is what happens. Um, if you have suspicions, the best thing you can do is call that into the National Human Trafficking Resource Center. Uh, and we can provide uh, that phone number for yeah, you. Yeah, you. You have a background. I mean, your, your title now, you're working with YWCA of Greater Harrisburg, but you have worked with uh, the National Human Trafficking Resource Center in the past uh, and have been involved with a task force here in South Central Pennsylvania. So this is something that you, how did you get involved? Because you started in Perry County, right? <laughs> That's correct. I ran a victim witness program for the district attorney in Perry County, and uh, through that program became aware of the really great work that's done at the YWCA and had a chance to work in their violence intervention and prevention department running that. So uh, through that, we became involved in the anti-human trafficking efforts here in South Central Pennsylvania. Uh, in 2011, in fact, um, our South Central Human Trafficking Response Team became the first uh, response team uh, to combat trafficking in Pennsylvania. Did you have trafficking in Perry County? There's trafficking everywhere, um, and that's what we really want to make clear today. So everything we've already talked about, um, these, these horrible, awful situations, the kidnapping, human trafficking is happening right in people's homes. Parents are trafficking their children to pay their rent. They sell their child to the landlord to cover the rent. Parents are trafficking their kids. Uh, mom's boyfriend is trafficking the child to pay for drugs. This stuff is happening right here in ways that people don't recognize as trafficking. So we really want to be able to paint a picture of what trafficking looks like in our communities so folks know what to look for. We had a great uh, state police officer many months ago made a traffic stop on I-81, uh, two adults, four juveniles, and um, he knew just that gut feeling that says something isn't right here. What ended up happening was a major drug bust, but also four juveniles rescued from sex trafficking. Where were they from? you remember? They originated in Ohio. Mm -hmm. So they these were American Juveniles. Absolutely. Most of the clients that we are working with through our Path 15 project at the YWCA have been domestic born. So we've identified in the past less than two years 55 individuals who meet the definition of a severe form of trafficking. 
Um, out of those, we've served 50, and the majority of those are domestic-born individuals. Mm-hmm. By the way, that uh, toll-free phone number for the National Human Trafficking Hotline is 888 373 7888. And we'll put that on our website as well, WITF.org. Again, 888-373-7888. Sherry, as I told you, I'm going to jump around on some of these topics. Um, But in your, the books that you write, Mm -hmm. they're novels for the most part, they're fiction. Right. But you incorporate uh, social issues like uh, human trafficking as part of that. What are you looking to accomplish when you do that? Well, um, I write suspense novels, so they're, you know, flat-out thriller, suspense, mystery-type novels. But when I started to to write, I thought, well, I really wanted to accomplish something uh, as well as just entertain people. And I I guess I call it stealth education, Uh, so that if you're being entertained by a book, um, but you're also learning something about in the in the case of Dead of Summer, you're learning about sex trafficking. Um, I think then I've accomplished two things. You know, I, I've entertained people, um, I've kept them on the edge of their seat, but at the same time, without really thinking about it, they've learned about something. And I know um, people often ta- tell me well, or ask me, well, why did you think about setting something like uh, sex trafficking in South Central Pennsylvania. And so that's when I can also tell them, well, this isn't just fiction. This is this is real. I mean, my book is fiction, of course, but the situations are real. Um, and, you know, I talk about a kid who's in the child welfare system, and then it also involves international sex trafficking as well, based on some of the um, trips we've taken overseas and some of the things that, that my husband and I have observed. But, uh, but you know, if you are able to uh, see something in a fictional context, often that can make you appreciate and start to investigate and look into it further and, and understand. Well, so it's sort of a first step toward um, education. Yeah, we do know that uh, many times it takes being entertained to get people's attention, uh, whether it be uh, in books, whether it be a television show, whether it be a movie. I have to admit that one of the the first things that everyone thinks about with uh, human trafficking was the movie Taken a few years ago. Now, that may, maybe it's not, I don't know. It seems like an extreme case for those who who saw the movie. There was a guy whose daughter was, uh, I guess, former CIA, whose daughter was uh, kidnapped from Paris and was forced into the sex trade. Liam Neeson. Right, and uh, that's right. He he went on a one-man rampage to take care of all the, the kidnappers and the traffickers. But probably, I mean, one thing that does is bring attention to the issue, but what it also does, because it is a fictionalized account, and, you know, it is, does go to extremes, that, I don't know, it, it probably provides, make it, it, it helps the stereotype along that this only occurs overseas, and, you, you know, you go to certain cities, girls, young girls kidnapped and forced into the sex trade. So... Go ahead, we're well, going to say and, and I think you, you make a good point because there's also, uh, on the other side, there's a, a bit of this romantic image of prostitution. I mean, how much, many times in literature and in movies, are, do you 
have the hooker with the heart of gold. Yeah. You know, Julia the, Roberts. Uh, right, and, yeah. the pretty woman. Right, right, um, right. It, you know, there's a show out now called The Girlfriend Experience where this, uh, you know, very capable woman decides to go into the sex trade. But it's not that pretty in real life. It's not that pretty at all. Mm. Um, most most people who are in prostitution aren't there by choice. Maybe in Nevada, but they aren't there by choice. Where it is legal. Um, and if you're a child, there's really no question of choice. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a considered sex trafficking, regardless of whether you think you're making a choice to do it or not. Mm. All right, let's take another phone call from Peter in Lancaster. Peter, you're on the air. Good morning. My question uh, is regards to the customer base. For, for that amount of sex trafficking to take place, there has to be a sizable number of customers involved. And what's being done to deal with that? Good question. Thank you very much for your call. Rhonda? Yeah, it's a great question. And it is a, a really targeted point that we need to make is until we start addressing demand, we're not going to get very far with this issue. Um, oftentimes, authorities are out, um, you know, running prostitution stings. And don't get me wrong, this is great because it gives us a chance to intervene in the lives of the individuals who are being exploited, but it doesn't necessarily address the demand, and we need to find ways to do more. Um, this, it is so easy. As I, as I sit here and talk to you, I can get my cell phone out and order a pizza up on my cell phone, and I can order up a human being maybe to spend the night and eat that pizza with. And I don't mean to make light of this, but that's how simple this is. And I guarantee you, when I sit here and do that, if I would sit here and do that, I should say, there's not going to be a police officer knocking at the door wanting to arrest me for breaking the law. So, uh, you know, my, my personal opinion is we need to do more. We need to target the demand there are ad campaigns out there that try to target, you know, the demand. You'll see posters from She's Somebody's Daughter that, that use that slogan and say, look, this person you're buying is somebody's child, is somebody's daughter, could be your mother. Um, but I think we have a long way to go. I, you know, it is tough not to make judgments about people like this, but, well, anyway. Uh, <laughs> it's hard for most of us to comprehend uh, an adult who pays for sex with a child. And, you know, and those, those people that will travel uh, to Thailand, for example, uh, for sex tourism, it just, it's, I, I, it's, it's hard to understand. Yeah. And it's not just Thailand. It's other Southeast Asian countries. There's these dating hotlines uh, that sound like they're just, uh, you know, date arrangements. But uh, there's one out there that uh, takes a group of men um, a thousand men a year, I read, to Ukraine to uh, meet girls. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm not sure if it's a mail order bride thing or whatever, but, you know, there's a lot of um, sex trafficking in the um, Eastern Bloc countries, the former Eastern Bloc countries. But sex trafficking is, and human trafficking is now the almost as big in organized crime in terms of profits. I think it's $32, million, $32 billion a year. Um, human trafficking is, a, is a, as an industry. Um, 
drug trafficking, I think, is the only other um, organized crime that's um, that's comparable. And to put that in perspective, that's only slightly less uh, profit than Apple makes a year. Mm. You know, so somebody out there is buying. Is, well, buying and making money, and, and, it's making not the money. Vic- and it's not the victims. No. Um, you know, and one of the most basic questions, Rhonda, as you were describing, uh, and this is mostly forced labor, but I guess it holds true for those in the in the sex trade as well. Why don't they escape? Why? How? What ba- binds them to these people? You mentioned that they're being threatened. Um, they could be exposed to, to being illegal in the country and being deported. But, uh, you know, m- many people will look at that situation and say, if things are that bad, why don't they just escape? Well, you bring up all valid points. And when you tie all the things that you're saying together, Scott, you know, we start to see a picture of really hopelessness and helplessness. So even if somebody comes, let's say, into this country And they're undocumented, and they know that. They get here, the job isn't what they described. Now what are they going to do? Because they're here illegally. Um, The traffickers are going to hold that over their head. They probably don't speak the language. And then they're taken somewhere. A lot of times it might be a remote farm out in a rural area with no transportation. They're literally taken out in a van, maybe six or eight or 10 or more, dumped off, and that's where they stay. So where are they going to go? Who are they going to seek for help? They don't speak the language. And they're certainly not going to go to the authorities. You know, that's just sort of raising your hand and saying, you know, please deport me. When it doesn't solve the issue for them as to, you know, why they came here, you know, to improve their life, to, to help their families. So I I think when you put that whole picture together, you can see this hopelessness, helplessness, and of course, then the threats and potentially, you know, they are being abused and beaten and, um, you know, many other things that we don't want to think about. Now, what you just described, that's mostly uh, foreign, those born overseas who have been kidnapped and uh, forced into, uh, into either sex trade or forced labor. What about those born here in the United States? Well, you know, it depends um, on each situation is certainly different. So whether you're exploiting, you know, the labor of minors um, who really don't know any better, um, nobody's looking for them. Uh, Sherry mentioned runaway youths certainly are at greater risk for all types of trafficking. Um, And again, you know, where are they going to go and who's going to help them? And that's what part of the reason the two of you are here today. Where are they going to go and who is going to help them? Well, uh, through the YWCA, we um, have been the lead organization in launching what we call PATH 15. PATH stands for the Pennsylvania Alliance Against Trafficking in Humans Route 15 Project. That project is designed to provide services for victims of human trafficking, both sex and labor trafficking. Um, along the 12 counties that run the Route 15 corridor in Pennsylvania. So we're looking to intervene. We're looking to provide services to help victims, um, you know, stabilize, reenter society, uh, heal from the trauma. We also provide education and outreach. So like today with um, Penn State's Public Health Day, we'll be over there just trying to show the community what trafficking looks like here 
uh, in South Central Pennsylvania and what they can do to spot it and how to respond to it. We'll talk more specifically about that in just a moment. Sherry, what were you going to say? Um, I was also going to say that the um, the Polaris Project, uh, which operates this national human trafficking hotline, if I'm not mistaken, um, also takes calls from victims. Um, you know, so that uh, there are ways for victims to reach out uh, directly if they don't feel comfortable going to the police. If they call the National Human Trafficking Hotline, somebody can help them there as well. So that's to report if you think there's trafficking, um, you know, in that uh, motel next door um, or that home next door. Um, or if you are a victim who is lucky enough to be able to uh, understand your situation and get to a phone, uh, that's also a possibility. And that number is uh, 888-373-7888. That's the National Human Trafficking Hotline. Um, You mentioned, Rhonda, that Route 15 corridor. Why? Well, it's connecting a lot of the major byways here in in uh, Pennsylvania. And Harrisburg, in fact, has, if you look on Polaris's website, excellent resource, they have a map of where the most trafficking calls are coming from. And in Pennsylvania, Harrisburg is covered by a big red dot, which means high volume of uh, suspected activity. We are only rivaled by Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. So this area is, uh, it's a pass-through you know, to go to New York, to go to the South, to go to the East and West, frankly. But it's also a destination for trafficking and a source to recruit victims. So everything that the traffickers are looking for is is right here. I have to admit that uh, one of the reasons I thought you brought that up is because when you travel uh, north on uh, Route 15, uh, you see a lot of very small, out-in-the-country strip clubs. Are those places, and you know, I, I know we can't name names or anything like that, but are those places that there's possibly uh, some people who have been uh, been trafficked? Sure, absolutely. Uh, you know, anytime you're looking at the you know adult entertainment industry, the likelihood of some kind of commercial exploitation is pretty high. Uh, now, as as far as our Path 15 project, we are not going to be investigating those things. The, the, we do work, you know, closely with the authorities so that they're the ones handling that, and we're providing the support and services once you know that is uncovered. Uh, you know, I I checked websites, and you know, I was looking for numbers going into the program. I saw that in 2016, there have been 24 calls from Pennsylvania reporting human trafficking. And two-thirds of those were sex trafficking as opposed to forced labor. Um, the industry, and on the website, it mentions the industries that uh, uh, are its most prevalent. And the industry for at least 2016 that had the most, I don't know if these are investigations or calls coming in, where it said hostess slash strip clubs. So I don't know what what a hostess is in a strip club, but you got the idea. I mean that uh, it is something in the adult entertainment industry right. where you know someone is being forced into into that industry. I think in in you know some of the accounts that I've heard is in strip clubs, you know 
person goes in perhaps thinking, hey, they're just going to dance. Um, but then it keeps getting, uh, you know, more, more and more drawn into uh, things that they don't want to do. Um, or other, in other cases, they're just sites where people are trafficked and forced to, to work in strip clubs. Um, another part of the adult entertainment industry that we haven't mentioned is porn. Um, if you think that girl that you're watching on screen looks pretty young, well, she probably is pretty young, and she's probably being trafficked. We only have a few minutes left, and I want to thank both of you for being here today. Uh, Act 105, legislation and uh, other programs that are in place to help victims and address the issue. What, what is uh, Act 105? So Act 105 is Pennsylvania's anti-human trafficking legislation. It was passed uh, in September of 2014. And, uh, you know, while Pennsylvania had some legislation before, there was a lot of loopholes. This legislation is one of the most comprehensive that Pennsylvania has ever had. And it really addresses prosecuting uh, traffickers, protecting victims, and preventing trafficking. And as far as prosecuting, it's really all-encompassing. So if you're a hotel owner and you know your room is being rented out, for the the purpose of trafficking, you can be charged with trafficking. So we've really broadened who can be prosecuted under this and given our our uh, state and local officials some really powerful tools. We only have about a minute left, and I, I know you talked about this earlier, Sherry, but just we had a caller who asked the question. Everyone thinks of girls, and the majority are girls or women. But are there boys and men who are being trafficked as well? Absolutely. I mean, in sex trafficking, there are boys. You know, there's lots of runaway boys on the street. LBGT um, kids um, are especially vulnerable because a lot of them are kicked out of their homes rather than runaways. And remember, a lot of runaways um, are sexually or uh, physically abused at home. So they're already vulnerable the minute they hit the streets. Mm -hmm. uh, and then in forced labor across the world. Certainly there are many men um, and boys in forced labor situations. Well, the National Human Trafficking Hotline, 888-373-7888, and we will have that on our website as well. Uh, Rhonda Hendrickson works for the uh, YWCA of Greater Harrisburg. She's the Director of Violence Intervention and Prevention, and Sherry Knowlton's an author and healthcare consultant. Again, we'll be speaking at uh, Central Penn College at about 10.30 this morning, so if you'd like to hear more, um, I encourage you, and there's a lot of other good programs there as well, so thank you very much for thank being you. with us today. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. In the summer of 2012, the Curiosity rover landed on Mars, 140 million miles from Earth. It doesn't get the kind of attention that the Apollo moon landings did, but it is not a stretch to say it was one of this nation's greatest scientific achievements. At the helm of putting a vehicle on Mars was Adam Stelzner, who has written a new book, called The Right Kind of Crazy, a true story of teamwork, leadership, and high-stakes innovation. Mr. Stessner, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Okay. The term rocket scientist is used very often to today, today to describe a person who is uh, intelligent. But you truly are a rocket scientist. However, no one would have seen that coming all the way through your teen years, would they? No, 
they wouldn't have. I was a very poor student in school. I um, I started down a path of playing rock and roll. I was a, a wannabe rock star in the San Francisco Bay Area when one night after returning home from a, a show, I noticed the stars were in a different place in the night sky than they had been when I went out to the show. And I became curious about that motion of the stars in the night sky. I was not a good student. I'd missed the whole earth spinning on its axis thing. <laughs> and I went down to the local community college to take an astronomy course to teach me why the stars were moving. It had a prerequisite of physics. I said, physics, that's crazy. But it was conceptual physics, physics without math, physics for poets. So I said, well, maybe I'll be okay. I took that class, and my world changed. That... It, it caught me, and I just took off in a different direction. Yeah, what you're describing, and you describe in your book, is your curiosity took over. And, you know, that's something that we here at WITF as a public media station, we talk about curiosity all the time. But you're the perfect example of someone who, I mean, and you, you didn't really describe it like you did in the book. Not only were you a rock and roller, but you smoked dope, you grew pot. Uh, as you said, you weren't a very good uh, uh, student, but your curiosity one night changed your life yes it did and that act of following my curiosity i have discovered is one of the most powerful potent and human activities that we have and i think it's expressed when we explore i think uh curiosity is a spark and exploration is the fire that burns from it and um i love it well, you said that you went to the local community college, but you didn't stop there. In fact, you went a whole lot further when it comes to education. Talk about your educational path. Well, so I started at the local community college, and frankly, I started by redoing my high school education because I had really been mostly stoned and not present in high school, and, um, and then followed with a, a mechanical engineering degree from the University of California, Davis. I went down to Caltech and became a graduate student, uh, got a master's in applied mechanics, and then finally finished my Ph.D. at the University of Wisconsin in Madison uh, uh, in engineering physics. Now, again, I, I think back to uh, you, you talk about some of the things that your father even said about uh, your future. He wasn't real optimistic. There weren't a lot of people who were optimistic about your future, and just what you described, I mean, that is amazing. Right. It's a, it's, a, it's a stark lesson for me that it's easy to count yourself out. I had convinced myself and everybody in my life that I was not a good student and was really not able to apply myself. And, and as my father once said, he thought I was going to become a ditch digger. And um, I was wrong in my assessment, and, and I was convincing and convinced them along that same incorrect assessment of what I was capable of. And I have a feeling that that's true for other people, too. I have a suspicion that many times we count ourselves short, count ourselves out when we shouldn't. And so um, uh, I am hopeful that my story and, the, uh, and some of the lessons in the book will help people question, wait, what, what can I do if I followed my curiosity? Where could my curiosity take me? Yeah, it, it is uh, an inspiring uh, story, that's for sure. Eventually you got a job, and really I hate to even describe it that way. Uh, I, it's not like you walk in and fill out an application and they call you back two weeks later and say, hey, you got a job at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Uh, talk about uh, what JPL does, how you uh, actually got in and, and what you did at the beginning of your career there? 
Sure. You know, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory has been around since the uh, uh, – it started as an Army facility in the late 40s after the war. It's uh, responsible for the vast bulk of the U.S. unmanned space mission, the uh, robotic exploration of space. We do an awful lot of the nation's robotic exploration at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. What that means is we typically are, are making one-off creations to go to a new destination in our solar system to teach us something about a place in our solar system, in our universe. It's a um, collection of some of the finest people I've ever met, very, very bright folks. It's very competitive to get a job there. And my first job interview, cr I crashed and burned. I went there. I had a connection. I had a master's degree from, Cal, uh, from Caltech. I came up to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory thinking it was going to be a walk in the park, and I fell flat on my face. And it wasn't until I um, sort of did it the old-fashioned way and uh, sent resumes in and followed them up with calls that I found somebody who was interested in giving me a chance, and as it would come to pass, that chance worked out. I started in, a, in the uh, spacecraft structures and dynamics group doing sort of more traditional stress analysis, uh, but because I was kind of inclined towards the odd problem or certainly willing to handle or look and engage in the odd problem, I sort of collected odd problems started coming towards me, and that sort of spiraled my career into a different direction, which eventually ended up with me taking jobs like the landing job, where I led the team that landed Curiosity and, on and Mars. I want to talk a little bit about, more about that, but uh, one of the first projects you work on was trying to land a vehicle on a comet. Now, the yes. first attempt was unsuccessful because landing gear was a problem. So you eventually, as you moved on and you were working on Curiosity, the rover for Mars, landing gear and how to land that spacecraft was one of the the real challenges talk about that sure um we uh you know uh when you're landing a huge rover on the surface of mars this curiosity rover is uh, the largest rover ever put on another planet and it is the size of an of an automobile about two thousand pounds in weight um when you're, well, all of the previous techniques that we'd used to land spacecraft on Mars, and we put a few spacecraft on the surface of Mars, all of those various techniques were not available to us. Uh, we'd used airbags in the past. The airbags, um, there's no airbag material known to humankind that's strong enough to build, um, to handle such a, the mass of this big rover. Um, we had used legged landers before, but we'd lost some legged landers due to to um, instability in the presence of rough terrain. And if you put a big rover on top of a legged lander, that's not going to work out. And so we were really forced uh, to come together and look again at this question of how to, what kind of landing gear to use for this big rover. And when we finally looked back at it and sat with the open question long enough, that happened in the fall of 2003, we came away from that with this idea of this technique that would be called the sky crane, where we would lower the rover below a jet backpack on cables and then touch it gently onto the surface of Mars on its wheels. 
that's the sky crane, that's the right kind of crazy, according to the NASA administrator, <laughs> the top brass at NASA. And that's the technique we used. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I love how you describe uh, kind of a typical day at work for you because it sounded like uh, uh, with your team, and you are very high on teamwork, um, that with your team that you're always coming up with ideas. And to say thinking outside the box, that's so cliche and it's so far away from what you do. You're trying to come up with di different ideas, things that people never would have thought of. What it reminded me of, there's a famous scene in the movie Apollo 13 where it said, we literally have to fit a square box into a round hole. That sounds like what you and your team were trying to do every day. Uh, that's true. And um, I, you know, it's a delightful, for some people, myself included, it's the best job on the face of the earth. Um, but it means you're always operating at the edge of what is possible. And so you're, you're using techniques to navigate that edge of what's possible. And that's why, and I believe that those, those techniques, some of those lessons are actually transferable to non-rocket science endeavors. You know, whether you're uh, starting a business or trying to, you know, um, innovate a new solution to some something you're, you're already working on. Some of the challenges of invention and managing innovation cut across, um, across fields. Uh, and certainly we face them so regularly that we get, I think, pretty well practiced at how to deal with them. We only have a minute or so left. I wish we had more time to talk. But uh, as we said, there are lessons or, that can be learned uh, from your book. You talked about teamwork. You also talked about ideas and not to fall in love with your own ideas and to listen to other people. What do you mean by that? Well, when you're inventing, it's, um, it's easy to become uh, attached to the idea that you've created. And one of the features of the culture at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory that's well-established and been around for years is this idea of separating the people from the ideas that the people hold. You've got to respect and love the people and make a collaborative environment for them, but you have to have the ideas compete in mortal combat. And so that's not about you can't defend your idea if from in that combat because you love it. You've got to let go of it. You've got to stand beside your idea and allow a critical eye to evaluate it. Uh, your own critical eye, the critical eye of others, you've got to let that happen if you're going to come up with the best solutions possible. Adam Steltzner has written a new book. It's called The Right Kind of Crazy, A True Story of Teamwork, Leadership, and High-Stakes Innovation. It has just been published, and I highly recommend it. Mr. Steltzner, thank you very much for, uh, for being with us today. Well, thank you very, very much for having me.